The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program. Today you'll be hearing from several publicly traded companies that as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base, have hired us to expose them to our audience for potential investment consideration. Before making an investment decision, I encourage you to do your own research on each company. All of our current sponsors are featured on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You can click through their banners or logos to their websites. We'll also speak to analysts on this program who will help to educate us and inform us as to what is happening in the financial world markets, etc. Let's begin the program. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. What's your advice to those fence sitters in precious metal stocks right now? Well, I like to sum it up this way. Don't quit now. I think this whole game is literally right in front of us. The big move in the juniors and exploration companies that we've waited for for quite some time. Even though I own the service, I'm an investor as well. It's been a difficult year, and we've watched the value of our portfolio drop. We've got a few good exceptions that companies that have either been bought out with mergers, etc. But on balance, it's been very difficult. I know in San Francisco recently at the Hard Assets Conference, we had uh, several subscribers that were there that have been with us for a long time. And over the years with us, they've made a lot of money, and they're still with us, which is great. And my message to everybody is a little more patience, guys, a little bit more patience. Seasonality-wise right now, we're in here in early December. Let's face it, tax loss season could really create some incredible buying opportunities for some of these little stocks that have been beat up. For those listening that still have some cash, this could be some great opportunities. Still, on the flip side of that, we've got some that we see that are going up, and they may have already bottomed. All I know is we are in this little short-term window, I think, here in December, as being some of the last really good buying opportunities we're going to have in these juniors for quite some time before we really start to explode. So I just sum it up. Don't quit now, guys. This game is in front of us. Uh, don't lose patience. This is the time to become aggressive. So should we put on our bathing suits and just jump right in? 
Pretty much. The only caveat I go with that is tax loss selling season. This is a great unknown for any individual company, what's going to happen to that share price. We have a lot of stocks that we are following that are, and not intentionally so, but they just worked out this way, at 10 cents or less. Well, you think, holy smokes, how much cheaper can they go? But you know, they could easily lose a few more pennies. And so percentage-wise, that's pretty staggering, you know, 20, 30, 40% down. If somebody was following us, if they already had core positions, that's wonderful. Don't worry about it. But if you're looking to top off your positions to buy a little bit more, right now we would almost encourage maybe put in, you know, the old stink bids just below the market, you know, maybe even 20% down. If the stock was selling at 10 cents right now, maybe stick an order in it at 8 cents, maybe 7 cents. If you get it, great. If you don't, you know, you've already got a position in that company. If you don't have a position yet, I'd say go ahead and take a position. I'm comfortable with all of our positions right now in my portfolio. I want them all to go up. Maybe not all will be the fabulous performers that I want, but that's my vision or else I wouldn't stay with those companies. I always like to think that everything we're in still has the opportunity for 500 to 1,000% potential, the 10-bagger, so to speak. This is why we're here. 10% doesn't excite us. You know, return on our money. We're out here to hit home runs. These home runs, I personally really believe, are all right in front of us. Don't lose patience with these markets right now. It's been a very trying year. You just don't want to quit now because all of the analysts out there, I truly believe, think like I do, that the big move is still in front of us for these resource stocks. If you get discouraged now, you're going to be left out of the game. If you're not a subscriber, come on board. A lot of great opportunities here right now. So just come into PreciousMetalsWarrants.com, see what we've got to offer. Don't let the name of the service, Precious Metals Warrants, discourage you because even for myself, I only have roughly 20% of my position in warrants. So we come at the market in my portfolio in many different ways to round this out and to have some good stock picks and many different kicks at the well, so to speak. So my top 25, top 30 positions, everything is in front of you to see, and we feel like we've got really good value for our subscribers. Dudley, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, you bet, Ellis. Have a good day. I've been speaking with analyst and newsletter writer Dudley Baker. His website is preciousmetalswarrants.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Mr. Sinclair was a general partner and member of the executive committee of two New York stock exchange firms and the president of a commodities clearing firm, as well as Global Arbitrage, a derivative dealer in metals and currencies, and we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest 
on the Ellis Martin Report. Jim, welcome to the program. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. First off, I'm going to ask you if we're going to see a gold Christmas. Will we see parabolic gains this month? Uh, it's possible. Although the pressures that are holding gold back even today from letting loose in these gains is the day-to-day waffling of the European so-called financial leaders. Not being able to get their gameplay together and depending on the Fed for its shock and awe show, only outlined the European leaders as not having any goal, not having any idea, not recognizing what the problem is, not recognizing the depth of the problem, and certainly having no way to handle it. Why is the volatility issue so Eurocentric in your opinion? It's Eurocentric because it's the nature of the beast. Different countries, but really different people. Different goals, different objectives, different ways of doing things. A union that could easily exist when there were no problems whatsoever, but a union that is not a family. A union that can't stand shoulder to shoulder. A union that doesn't see the common good. A union that only looks to its own private interests when it comes down to problems like this. And a union that will really not act until it's a crisis condition and then the Federal Reserve will act for it. You mean our Federal Reserve? Our Federal Reserve will be the lender of last resort to the Europeans, and and that's exactly what they just did. And what does this do for the U.S.? Well, it it impacts the dollar. It's not exactly QE. Quantitative easing, by definition, is really monetization. Monetization, by definition, is printing paper to buy your own paper. The nuance here is printing paper to buy somebody else's paper. When Europe is in need of dollars, and this great consortium announces the cooperation on dollar swaps at lower rates, what it's really announcing is it's getting the dollar swaps from the Fed. The Fed then is raising money, as it does, printing money, basically, but not buying its own bonds, fueling Europe to buy European issues. So it's QE on an international basis, not QE on a local basis. QE on an international basis can create as much dislocation in terms of inflation as it can when it is standard monetizing your own debt, when it's standard that a country is printing paper to buy their own debt. When the Fed prints paper to facilitate the purchase of eurobonds, it's doing it on an international basis with the impact the same. Why doesn't the market recognize this long term, therefore taking away some of the current volatility and just sending the price of gold and gold stocks upward, in your words, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit, to where there is no top? The markets want what they're used to. The markets want where they found their profits historically and traditionally. The markets want to see a general equities market higher and welcome QE on that basis. This is a complex situation. It's a buildup of not simply one or two or three administrations making poor choices in finance, but administrations going back most people's lifetimes. The problem is not easily soluble. There are no tools in the uh, work boxes of any central bank that can be applied to the problems that we can define, say, as a run on the bank, be it commercial or even sovereign. The only thing left is to create the liquidity to overcome it, and with liquidity as your only tool, the risk is hyperinflation. The lack of understanding of what's brought this about, the lack of understanding that there are no tools in the box that are going to fix it, the understanding that there's no will to face it politically here or in Europe, it has to convince any thinking person that gold as a asset without any liability attached to it, really the money of the people, is in fact displacing paper, which has been the tool of confiscation of people's hard work. Nothing has changed that. There isn't anyone out there in government that understands that. There are no plans that I see anywhere that have the ability to combat that. The logical conclusion then is that the price of gold will 
reach much higher levels over time. What forces this return to gold and silver currency as a currency themselves? People are driven by fear and greed, fear of paper as paper fails. I mean, let's just take an example of the recent failure of a major clearinghouse. Now, nobody's thinking about it, but every listener to us right now who invests in anything and keeps their assets with their brokers has a clearinghouse function. A clearinghouse actually acts for and on their behalf in the broker's name. Confidence breaks very slowly, but right now, how can anyone keep significant money with any brokerage or bank when the clearinghouses, MF is allowed to fail, and to fail in a manner where it evaporates clients' money? In clear contradiction of the law, with so far no significant legal intervention with the principals or any uh, available assets to make the customers whole. So confidence goes through its own cycle of fear and greed. Now, confidence in paper sunder, confidence in paper goes lower, confidence in something other than paper goes higher. Assets become selective. Some are seen to be purely speculative. Paintings and wine might go up for a while. As this trend continues without any apparent plan or capable person with a plan or a person in power with a plan, capable and willing to act, then the natural forces of fear and greed that make every market depreciate the interest in paper and appreciate the interest in gold. Do you think the powers that be are going to fight or buck the trend like the state of Utah has done to accept gold and silver as currency. Do you believe that down the road it will become illegal to buy or sell gold again? I think that legalizing in the sense of replacing a currency on a state basis is probably not that difficult to come by because it seems terribly purposeful, but again, here's a situation where there also could be a lack of understanding. The system has to be entirely revamped. World trade today couldn't function on a gold-based currency convertibility. What would eventually develop is gold that will be attached to but not convertible from an international reserve currency of a virtual nature that you and I can't buy or sell. You know, being that we're really a reactionary culture, something like that is uh, not likely to happen unless there's some sort of hard fall to the slow collapse we're in right now. Well, it's a train wreck. It hasn't stopped. It's still collapsing. What was done by the Fed and in Europe had more to do with the failure of a clearinghouse than it did with any suspected French bank that was supposed to be near failure. There is, again, nothing out there that argues that the trend we're presently in has, in fact, either been fully priced or reversed in any way. It is out of control, and it's out of control not because of this administration or the administration before it, but many administrations. Are we talking Nixon or are we going back to Roosevelt? Well, you can go to Roosevelt, but Nixon did give it a good kick down the road. What can we do about all this? Let's talk to the folks that are listening to this program. What's Jim Sinclair's best advice to our audience? Well, nobody should throw rocks in glass houses and nobody's perfect out there. But to the best of your ability, try and straighten out your own financial situation being less dependent on debt. If a central bank is failing to function as a central bank, then you need to be your own central bank. You might want to hold some of your reserves in gold if you can afford it, but if you can't, at least try and control your debt situation. And if you can't control the debt situation, seek some manner or, or form to officially admit the fact and start over again. 
The individual, when the government has gone wild, must go conservative. The individual doesn't have generally the money to be speculating gold, and, and for that matter, they shouldn't be. But the individual does have control over their own spending. They do have control over their own debt levels. They do have control over decisions made today that could be extremely critical to their future. Where do they live? What do they do? How do they act? How do they spend? It's a question of looking around at yourselves first before thinking any investment whatsoever. Clean up the house. That's what you can do. So it's all about lifestyle, essentially, Jim. We're going into an entirely different lifestyle here. It's only been proven that those who have the gold do make the rules, that the rulers are moving towards Asia and away from the West. And there's absolutely no question that unless we uh, prepare ourselves for a different lifestyle and are able to confront and accept that, we're going to have a very hard time getting through this because you and I and the audience can't change it. Let's talk about wealth preservation. Are you recommending that individuals that are somewhat liquid convert cash assets into some kind of gold, whether it be ETFs, bullion, or speculative gold stocks? The bottom line is what is the best? In speaking to the audience, the best is physical metal. Physical metal represents money that has no liability attached to it. That means that it's not a piece of paper and a promise to pay which has debt issued against debt issued, basically a liability liability of the dollar, liability of the euro, liability of every fiat currency. So saving in gold is the best action you can take with funds that you have available for investment after cleaning up your own affairs. If I had debt, I'd reduce my debt before I did anything. With gold at near 17.50 an ounce, is bullion cheap right now? Yes, bullion is cheap right now because it's not fully reflecting the dire conditions that exist in the U.S. banking system where balance sheets are cartoons, cartoons which have been permitted by the keepers of auditing, FASB, when they capitulated to valuing things at a market and allowed the banks to value the so-called paper assets at whatever they thought they are presently worth, taking no consideration into the probability that most everything they hold and every single what they call legacy asset is is in fact going to fail. The height that the gold can go to is the depths the paper currency can find. Right now, the dollar trades against the euro. It's a systemic system mirror, meaning the values are created only by what happens to one in reverse to the other. If the euro goes up, the dollar goes down, vice versa. But there's no intrinsic value being measured by that in the marketplace. Once the euro finally meets its maker, or they settle their problems in between either of those, then the dollar will become the major focus of the marketplaces and will go significantly lower. And at some point, gold and gold stocks have to completely decouple from that, don't they? Well, with gold and gold stocks, the gold will be valued, obviously, as it is each day in the marketplace. And gold shares will be valued, even if the general investors don't take interest, by other major producers who have clearly not increased their resources or reserves will be looking to accumulate those companies that have. So whether it happens in the marketplace through marketplace valuation or whether it happens by major mining companies seeking additional reserves, the potential for the gold share, especially as depressed as they are right now, is significant. When do you see gold stocks more commensurate with the price of bullion? We see a huge disparity at the moment. When's that going to turn around in your opinion? Well, what you've got right now is significant competition and things that uh, people can trade that become more comfortable with, like the exchange-traded funds, that our gold funds have taken huge amounts of money away from the general investment in the gold share. But what the general public fails to recognize and can easily find out if they read the prospectus of these exchange-traded funds is that these are bags of paper gold. And those that aren't are attractive, but they're few. 
those that are the majority are no better than having your money with MF clearing. And in a sense, that's the beginning. When it's recognized that the EFTs are dealing in derivatives on gold and not primarily gold, it's my opinion that the EFT will become less popular. I think that will make the gold shares a great deal more popular and acquisition will have an impact on price. Buyers beget buyers and the bear market and gold shares, illogical as it is, will turn into a bull market. No, we're talking primarily to an American audience and we're still a reactionary culture. We do what we're told through the media and through advertising. Isn't it just a matter of getting the word out to where everyone believes it's hip to buy gold and by gosh, that's where I should put my money in gold? By the time that it's gotten to that degree, gold will be trading in three and four thousand dollars an ounce. There's still a need to understand the problem and understand what makes the price of gold, to understand what makes the price of gold shares and benefit by it. Because by the time the sheep are awake, the probability that gold is nearing some period of full valuation is quite high. There's such a potential for great rewards with gold stocks. Of course, there's always great risks as well. The rewards long term, I believe, exist with several of these gold stocks. You're not wrong. The gold stocks have to have the ounces. They have to have the 43101 compliant reports which stand to prove those assets. They have to have the funds necessary to bring these assets into production or to their positive, definitive feasibility condition. They need to have imprimatur, as it was, in terms of cash reserves and ounces production and management. And to the degree that they have any and all of that, they move up the ladder of probable greater profit. Now, what motivated you, sir, with your background that we spoke of in the introduction of this segment, to become president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation in 2002? If you go back into my history, there are some that believe that in the last great gold market that, in fact, I was the largest volume trader in the marketplace. And there is a good deal of reality to that. But at that time, I was 35 years old, and I didn't have an eraser on my pencil. As many young people do, failure was not a possibility. In the big market, I carried 20,000 long. If I was to do that today, I think I might probably need to go to the emergency ward before the close of the day, the way the gold market moves and the risk inherent. I decided that what I wanted to do was to have as much gold as I possibly can by having a good participation in a company that had significant opportunity to do that. And I think I've accomplished that. Now, you're talking about personal wealth preservation, not just for you, but for the shareholders of your company against everything we've talked about. Well, bear in mind that, you know, my history is a risk taker, and my success is in taking risk. But there is, as one becomes more mature, a better understanding of what constitutes risk. So what I've just said is not without its potential downside, but it's a method in which I personally can, in a sense, speculate on the price of gold by trying to be part of an entity which controls significant amounts of gold going into production. How many ounces of gold does Tanzanian royalty control? Well, right now we have a project which is 2.2 million, of which we have 55%. Another project with 600,000, of which we have approximately 55%. And we have various other projects which are going in for 43101 reports now. And the present cap value on the stock is slightly above 300 million. What I firmly believe is if you build a company and construct that company with an idea on what that company can be sold to another for, then the potential is terrific. So right now, I'm looking at how many ounces we have, historical sales, where we stand, and the fact that, in my opinion, the market is significantly behind the actual transactional value of the company. So are you considering yourself a takeout candidate down the road? You would build yourself just like that. 
correct. I'm intrigued that you're in partnership with the state government in Tanzania. Most of what I've done in my life has been a bit of a leading edge, and Tanzania has shown a great respect for free markets, and it has treated its investors very, very well, and the welcome is sound, the rule of law is sound, all of the criteria you need to feel comfortable are there. But the day of mining colonialism is behind us. The day of digging a hole in somebody's country, paying them no taxes, and leaving them with an empty hole is history. You need to recognize that in all of these countries, there's a growing desire to have a bigger part of their own assets. It only makes sense to become full partners. Permits are required. There are licenses constantly required. And a partnership which sees its actions in benefit of the other partner or only in benefit of themselves is a much better business relationship than breaking it down into the foreigner taking advantage of the local wealth due to conditions of poverty. So you are empowering the locals. We want to be the best thing that ever happened for the location we're in, stakeholders, as well as for our shareholders. With about $30 million in the bank, do you expect to have to go back to the market for cash? No, I don't, because the development of a property is not equity-based. It's based in asset loan. The lenders for these type of projects are quasi-government organizations and certain banks that specialize in it. The property is the collateral, and the payoff period, the capacity of the asset will determine the attraction of the loan. No major development of a mining property takes place based on equity financing because it would dilute the stockholders too much. I figure I should have $20 million at definitive feasibility, which is another new name for bankable feasibility. I believe I'll still have capital of over $20 million on our major project. Now, Tanzania is one of the oldest mining companies in the world. It's the third largest gold producer in Africa. And this government is very, very friendly toward mining gold and minerals in general. That's correct. I wrote a book back in the 90s called Boom. It was basically a book on how one would have to conduct themselves in the developing world based on interest in extractive industries. The welcome that was clearly there then has matured into a good business relationship developed out of free market negotiation with the government. And the clear understanding that it benefits the government if we succeed, it benefits us if the government succeeds. The combination is the business plan. Instead of waiting for poor relationships to create a demand for nationalization, nationalize yourself ahead of time to prevent the poor relationship. What does that mean, Jim? It, what it basically means is that they won't take you over because we are already 50% partners with the government. Nationalization, such as what Chavez has done, will fail. This is an extraordinarily complex business. Chavez will not be able to produce gold as free markets can produce it. His desire to own all his gold will fail because he won't be able to get it out of the ground. And the companies that failed to see that coming in the first place have lost their opportunity. Bottom line, bring the government in and the people of the country, who in fact is your host, into profit in a significant way just like you do any JV in Canada or the United States or Australia. You don't do it differently in the developing countries because they suffer from poverty and because you feel they may not have, at the point of negotiation, the same understanding of mining that you do. Make them partners and make them as much money as you're going to make and succeed. Failing to do that always will lead to confiscation. Are you solely focused on Tanzania right now? Our success, and this is a showcase deal, our success will be the education. I've spent over 20 years in Tanzania and built my political base over there. I've lived there. My children know all of the youngsters that are now moving up in government. To have proper political 
positioning takes many years of very serious and significant activity. I am Tanzania, and as a company, our business plan has no prerogatives outside of Tanzania. But I have received an invitation from a South American government based on the transaction recently made and their recognition that there are people out there in the free market whose mommies taught them to share, who understand that if your partner makes money, he doesn't look to take you out. If your partner succeeds and you succeed, you're going to have an ongoing relationship which will survive any political change. There's truly enough abundance in the ground for everyone to be happy. That's not the way this industry thinks. This industry is the last bastion of colonialism. It's all for me and none for you. And most all of the projects you see to build a school or to build a hospital or something like that are really show projects. The real feeling of wanting to see that community prosper that is at your gate it has to be something that all directors of the company hold as a goal to be accomplished. The day of having a major mine or a major refinery back up to a hut city is over. If you want to know the problem in Nigeria, you need only go to National Geographic and look at a multi-billion dollar refinery backed up to a hut village. I mean, you don't have to be Einstein to know that's going to be a problem. So step one, going into any project. If they bring minerals to you that have a 43-101 basis and you don't share with them as you would with the same situation in Canada, in uh, Australia, or in the United States, you've made mistake number one. And you've made it very late in the game. Right now, generally when you hear of mining companies having problems, I assure you, the mining companies are making their own problems. Which one of your projects are you most excited about right now? I love the Buck Reef project because it's a geological duplicate of the Gata project, which is the second largest mine in Tanzania, probably going to be the largest mine. What excites me below that is development of surface and near-surface values because of the tremendous impact you can have on the locality when you bring in such significant business, when you buy groceries from the local grocery store. When you do, as we've done, and front-ended the money to a local fuel merchant who didn't have enough tank supply for diesel, front-ended them the diesel money and then bought the diesel from them and got paid back what we front-ended. Building occupation around the locals builds friendship and cooperation. Treating the locals like colonialists, building your fence very high, having your guards with guns builds nothing but animosity. Where's the company going to be in 12 months? I think you have to look towards it. Where is it going to be in 12 months, 24 and 36? Okay. Because we got contracts based on time. We've got to be in production in a certain amount of time. We've also said we will produce and we'll tell you we will bring you a mine in three years or pay you a penalty, a gross size penalty for each of the additional three years. So we've challenged ourselves both in time and against money to produce for the country and not be in there simply to develop something and hope to sell it to somebody else. Jim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining me on the program. An absolute pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again. I've been speaking with Jim Sinclair, the president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading under the symbol TRX on the Amex. Just type in TRX. Listen to the segment again and find a link to Tanzanian Royalty's website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president of Apogee Silver Limited, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property, located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, formerly Apex Silver. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property, located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of $0.18 cents 
and is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. Neil, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Why don't you introduce Apogee to our audience? We're a silver-focused mining company with our main assets in Bolivia and Chile. We have three projects with all with 43-101 resources. The strategy is to develop our flagship project, which is Pulukaya Resource in southern Bolivia, and bring it into production in the near to medium term. And then from there, we'll grow the company. We're a very strong base of shareholders, including Corda Lean Mines, who own just under 9% of the company, Spot Asset Management, Really, Eric Spots, Mr. Silver in the, in the industry, as you know, and that company's got just over 18% of our company. And we're also supported by a number of other funds, including Pine Tree, Aberdeen, and the Chinese Mining United Fund, which is a group of three Chinese companies that have also taken an interest in us. Now, you recently announced with regard to the Polakaya deposit, a 43-101 compliant resource of 29 million ounces indicated silver and 26 million ounces inferred. How advanced is this project? Well, we've just completed a rather large drilling program for that resource update, about 23,000 meters of drilling, and we're continuing our aggressive drilling program. It's an old historical mine that produced over 600 million ounces of silver between, I think it's 1883 and 1958. It was nationalized in 1958, and unfortunately, not a lot of money was spent on developing the infrastructure, so it closed around about the same time, and it's been closed ever since. We were fortunate enough to get hold of the company in 2006 and have been doing a lot of exploration and I was brought onto the board as the CEO in June this year because of my mining background. I'm a mining engineer that specializes in building mines. I've got 17 odd years experience in Africa. I'm South African originally and South America including Peru and I took on this role because I had a look at the resource and I thought it was a really fantastic resource for taking forward into production in 2015. But leading up to that, we're be building a pilot plant of 400 tons per day during the course of next year. And we have to have it commissioned by the end of next year. So we should see some early stage production from that, which will also be supporting our feasibility study for the larger mine going forward. And it'll be generating early cash flow. So I think it's a very exciting story. Well, you've got $16 million in the bank. Will you be able to generate cash flow from early production to continue on with further exploration efforts in that area? Certainly, once we get the plant running and the mine running, we will be able to generate free cash flow from there to be able to continue our exploration. But we're still calculating the numbers and as part of our feasibility study, but I've got a vision of growing the mine to around about 8 million ounces produced per year, hopefully around 2015. That's subject to what comes out in the feasibility study. And to grow a mine that size, we'll obviously need to finance that and take it from there. With Sprott and Pine Tree and the others that you mentioned, that shouldn't be a problem, should you need to go back and obtain more capital down the road. Absolutely, and we're also looking at debt financing facility with the pension funds in Bolivia. Some people are concerned about Bolivia as an investment destination, and I think it would be really good if uh, we could reduce that sovereign risk by actually raising cash locally. And we were initially a little bit not concerned about whether this is really that feasible, but I've heard that Pan American Silver were able to raise $60 million for their mine, San Vicente, in Bolivia. We feel we were able to raise a fair amount of money that way. Although it's not a done deal yet, it's something we're definitely looking at. Are you building a strategic relationship with the local government? Absolutely. We're actually partners with the government in this venture. The mines are all nationalized, so we have a lease agreement that gives us a hand control of the asset for a 2.5% royalty, which goes to Campanera Minera del Bolivia, which is a Bolivian state-owned mining company. And then we also pay a 1.5% royalty, so there's a total of 4% royalty for the rights to the property. And we have two partners, one of them being the government and the other one being the community. And I think that really helps us a lot because 
good to have your community on site. Relationship with the community and the government is everything in that part of the world. And, you know, we take that very seriously to make sure we maintain good relations, healthy relations with the local communities. Often mining companies overlook these things and end up having problems with the communities. We've taken the stance that we want to develop this mine for Bolivians in Bolivia. So it's a Bolivian mine and people in the area must benefit. With a share price of 18 cents, how do you compare to your peers in the area? Tell us about your share structure as well, Neil. Our uh, market cap is around $50, $55 million at that price. We have just under 300 million shares outstanding. And we have, as of October, I think we had $16 million in cash. No debt. We do have some warrants outstanding. There are a few coming out uh, at 14 cents this month. And then uh, we have a few more coming through in May next year. And what about valuation against your peers? Uh, there's three ways you can value a company like ours. One is on a NPV multiple, if you've got a life of mine plan or something like that, which we have. The other way is to do a cash flow comparable. And third way is to compare the resources in the ground. Our enterprise value is around about $50 million. Silver ounces in the ground is total ounces inferred and indicated together, including our properties in Chile, is 98 million uh, ounces. So that brings you up to 80 cents per silver ounce in the ground, which is certainly a lot less than our peers. If you look at Silver Fortuna, we like to compare ourselves against Silver Fortuna, who've got a resource of around 90 million ounces. Their share price is currently $8.71, and the enterprise value per silver ounce is about $8. We're sort of at 50 cents to 80 cents. The multiples are significant. Obviously, they're in production. They're producing 1 to 2 million ounces of silver per year now. They've got two mines. We kind of model ourselves on the same kind of business model that they had. A smaller mine get going to start to produce cash flow and then grow that mine. So that's the same kind of model that we have. But I think once we get into production, we'll certainly see a significant uptick in enterprise value as we come into production. I've been speaking with Neil Ringdahl, president of Apogee Silver, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE, and in the U.S. as A-G-E-E-F. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced-staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania, with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, tanzanianroyalty.com. That's tanzanianroyalty.com. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat leach operation. Scott, welcome to the program. Alice, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. For those that are either new to the program or not familiar with your company, please give us a brief background on Silvercrest Mines. 
Very quickly, my colleagues started this company in 2003. We set some very specific goals to go forward on. We wanted to establish a substantial precious metal resource base. We wanted to get the cash flow from production as quickly as we could, and we wanted to look for elephant deposits while we were doing that and probably preserve ourselves reasonably well as a potential takeover target. I think on those four objectives, we've certainly got three of those in place, and it looks like the results coming from La Jolla will probably fill that fourth objective. For the last several years, probably from late 2005, we've been really, really focused on the production side of things. The Santa Elena project that we picked up in 05, we've taken from dead stop through expiration, pre-feasibility, feasibility, construction, and of course this year declared commercial production earlier in the year. So that's gotten us to a fairly comfortable stage where we've reached the production targets that we look for, which we're doing right now about 3,000 ounces of gold per month and about 30,000, 35,000 ounces of silver. So that'll give us a good steady cash flow platform to go forward on. I think our cash flow in the second quarter of this year is plus $3 million, and we're looking for that to increase over the quarters as we go forward. Now, Santa Elena, which is just northeast of Hermosillo and prolific Sonora State, Mexico, is your flagship property, but let's talk about the jewel, if you will. La Jolla in Durango, Mexico. What have you discovered there recently? La Jolla is a property, a project that we picked up September of last year, I think it was. Similar in circumstances to Santa Elena in that it's been around for a while. A number of people have looked at it, had difficulties dealing with the owners, but we've been able to overcome those things. And we drilled our first phase of holes at La Jolla earlier this year and have just announced on Monday, I think, the results of at least one of the compilations that we've done. Our initial go-around at it looked at the high-grade silver, gold, copper values that we thought we could make a viable deposit out of. But looking at additional information that we acquired from one of the previous operators, we've been able to expand our horizon, if you will, and look at the possibility of a large bulk tonnage type of deposit. And the results that we've seen have been really, really encouraging. Some of the holes are running 250 meters thereabouts of 55 to 60 grams of silver equivalent, which for people that that don't think in grams is pretty close to an ounce and a half of silver. And over those kinds of widths, it provides us an opportunity to consider a very large bulk tonnage operation. When do you think you're going to be able to define that resource? That'll take a bit of time. We've done 26 holes, I think it is. We picked up another 51 holes in historical data. So that gives us a fairly decent look at about a thousand meters of strike length on the favorable horizon. There's another probably 1,500 meters that we haven't tested at all. So over the course of the next 12 months, we're going to take a hard look at all of that. We have a $3 million drill program scheduled that we've already started on. We expect to have three rigs running there for most of next year. That will go a long way to telling us about the continuity and the consistency of the grades that we expect to come out of there. So probably by next year, we'll have a good grasp on that. Before the end of this year, we expect to produce a 43-101 technical report with resource estimates attached to it. So it'll all be in stages, but we work very quickly towards defining an economic deposit and working out the capital costs and operating costs so that we know how fast we can go forward with building another production unit. 
What sort of news do you think we may be able to expect over the coming 12 months or so? We will have a very steady news flow, I think, coming out of Silvercrest. Probably the next item would be an update on the exploration activities that we are undertaking right now. We've drilled a number of holes, uh, cruised a mile, which we're preparing for feasibility study to part of the expansion plan for Santa Elena. So those results will be available. We'll give people a better idea of the exploration program that we're undertaking at La Jolla. We'll have our financial statements reporting before the end of the month. And one of the most significant elements, I think, is the release of a 43-101 with the initial resource estimates at La Jolla. Then through the first part of next year, of course, there will be updates on the activities or the results of all of those programs. We're also going forward with the expansion plant at Santa Elena, which we expect will double the production there over the next three years. We'll be starting construction at some point in time on a 3,500-ton-a-day conventional mill. We're collaring an underground decline in January of next year to take us down to the bottom of the current deposit at Santa Elena and see what kind of reserves and resources we can develop there. So it's going to be a really, really active 12 months for us. It's quite prolific around Durango and Hermosillo. Mineral-rich and polymetallic. You're very fortunate that you found the properties that you have. Are you going to be looking for more? Absolutely. As you say, it's a very prolific area. First Majestic Laparilla mine is just across the valley from us. The San Martin and Sabinas mines are probably 15 kilometers to the southeast of us. Those mines have been active in the same set of geology and types of mineralization that we have at La Jolla for probably plus or minus 300 years. So we're really in a great area. We've got some historical data that leads us in other directions, and those have identified probably three other targets around the results that we've just announced that we're really excited about. So we will take a look at that whole strip between La Jolla and San Martín and Venus just because of the prolific nature of that mineral zone. Now, we're still in somewhat of a tumultuous market, yet your company has seen a dramatic share price increase during the last month. How do you account for that? A couple of reasons. I think people are realizing that our Santa Elena mine is going to do what we said it's going to do. The production and the cash flow is coming out as to what we said. So that's a stabilizing effect, and we, I don't think, have suffered the big hits that some of the groups have. We have expansion plans to double our production going forward. So people look at that as the upside. And I think the news that La Jolla is starting to shape up fairly dramatically is starting to filter out and people are taking a hard look at us. And you can see that in our daily volumes of trading have been moving up nicely. So I think all of those things contribute to the resilience and the increase that we're seeing in our share price. I think when investors are taking a look at what's going on with La Jolla, they're looking at your track record with Santa Elena, and they expect the same potentially with La Jolla. It's always easy to go forward if you're going forward on a successful basis. I think you're absolutely right that we have certainly tried to do what we say we're going to do. That track record and the backgrounds of our management group are starting to shine through. Well, we certainly look forward to continued positive news coming out during the next few weeks and months. Scott, thanks very much for joining me today on the program. Absolutely. My pleasure once again, Alice. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Scott Drever, president of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol STVZF. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com.
IBC Advanced Alloys Corporation is a worldwide manufacturer and supplier of advanced materials and other intermediate products with a focus on rare metals or beryllium-related alloys, as well as non-ferrous alloys, for a wide range of industrial applications, including nuclear power, oil and gas, defense, electronics, and automotive. IBC has 65 employees and, while headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, has facilities in Pennsylvania, Indiana, Massachusetts, and Missouri. IBC trades on the Canadian Venture Exchange under the symbol IB.V. Join me now for a discussion with IBC President Anthony Dutton. We're at the Hard Assets Conference in beautiful San Francisco, and I'm with Anthony Dutton of IBC Advanced Alloys, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol IB and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under the symbol IAALF. And if you've listened to the intro, you've learned a bit about the company. Anthony, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome back to the program, and what have you been doing the last three weeks since we spoke last over the phone? Well, there's been an awful lot going on at IBC, actually, so a lot of your investors, a lot of your audience have probably been watching the uh, the global markets and a little bit of turmoil right now and some uncertainty. IBC has been carrying on very, very positively. We published our year-end financial numbers uh, quite recently, which showed a 37% increase in revenues over last year. We have a very, very strong order book. We are, like the rest of the world, very conscious of what's going on around us, but uh, so far, our key... Customers are continuing to uh, place orders, are continuing to grow with us. We've also just about completed our Utah drill program. We have a 35-hole drill program going on there right now. I think that uh, we're actually on a hole 32 this week, so we should be wrapped up in the next 5 to 10 days with that drill program and expect to have results out early in 2012. Now, you're a revenue-generating company. How are you doing that right now? Yeah, that's a very good question, Ellis, especially at a conference like this. When I tell people who come by our booth that we're actually profitable and generating in excess of $20 million a year in revenue, they look at me like I'm some kind of madman because most of the companies that are on the floor down there are exploration or development stage companies. We took a very different approach to our industry when we set the company up in 2007. We are a vertically integrated company with resource assets upstream, a processing partnership with the largest brilliant processor in the world, and then we have our four manufacturing divisions all located in the eastern United States. And the way that we are generating revenue is by selling finished product, primarily copper beryllium alloys and aluminum beryllium alloys to a whole range of customers. Our largest customers are in the aerospace, automotive, oil and gas, and industrial components sectors, and they buy our alloys for their very, very strong performance characteristics, and in the aluminum beryllium alloys in particular for the fact that they are virtually the lightest alloys on the market. So for certain aerospace applications, there really are no substitutes for what we have. So is there no recession in the aerospace or defense sector? Uh, We're in sort of a recession now. We've been in for a few years, and again, you're generating revenue, and you have clients that are purchasing your product. Yes, we are. Well, there is a global climate of uncertainty. So our customers, you know, two or three years ago may have been placing purchase orders with more abandon, if you will. Today they are placing those same purchase orders. However, they are being much more cost conscious. They're being much more careful about what they build up in inventory. But if you look at the cycle for the building of an airplane, for example, we are the exclusive provider of a copper alloy to Boeing for use on the Boeing Dreamliner 777 series. That has been a very, very long program that has been around for some years and it'll go through ups and downs of economic uncertainty back to times of economic confidence and Boeing will continue to build those jets. I believe that recently, I think it was Emirates, but it was a very, very large 
order that some airline put in. I think it was for 35 Dreamliners, representing some $15 billion in revenues to Boeing, which is music to our ears, of course, because that means they're going to need much more of our alloy. And as I said earlier, we are the only company that manufactures this alloy. We're the only company that supplies Boeing with this particular material. What are you doing at a resource conference then? Well, we have a resource division of our company. We have three divisions to the company, Alice. We have a manufacturing division. We have an R&D division, which is all about looking at new ways of using Brillium and other applications and other markets and other opportunities. And then we have, of course, our resource division. And the whole thrust of the company is to increase the demand for our upstream resource. So we wanted to make sure that we had a resource because, obviously, if we increase the demand for it by doing R&D and developing new markets, we don't want to do that for somebody else's benefit. We want to do it for our benefit. And so by owning these properties and developing these properties and exploring these properties and defining a resource on these properties, we will ultimately be doing all of this downstream work, i.e. increasing the manufacturing base and exploring through R&D initiatives new opportunities. We will be doing that for our own upstream resource base. Right now, it seems since you're vertically integrated that you're your own client for the offtake. Will that ever expand outside of your company? Will you offer beryllium to wholesale buyers in Japan or China or anywhere else in the world? We may well do. Right now, our main focus is, as as you said, being our own client, if you will. You know, being vertically integrated is key, key, key to the rare metals and rare earths. And I don't think that a lot of people really understood that a few years ago. And we've now seen what's happened over the last 18 months, that there's been a big drop in the value of some of the rare earths and rare metals stories because they haven't fully understood the whole downstream vertically integrated nature of the industry. But if you look beyond the rest of the sector and look at us specifically, you will see that unlike nearly every other rare metal company and every other rare earth company downstairs, we are the only one that is generating revenue. We are the only one with a vertically integrated approach, and I think that we're the only one that's going to be able to create some good long-term shareholder value. Uh, Many of your listeners may have heard of Jack Lifton. Jack Lifton wrote an article which was published about, I think, 10 days or so ago. And in that article, he said that 85% of rare metal and rare earth companies will fail. And they will fail for one reason and one reason only, and that's because they do not have a vertically integrated approach and they do not have a manufacturing base. So using that as a measure, if you will, given that we do have revenues and that we do have a manufacturing base, I'd like to think that we're going to be one of the 15% that are going to succeed and succeed very, very nicely. Well, you know, having said that, I would think that most of those companies, if not all of them, are not in production. The resource is not coming out of the ground. As you said, they're not generating revenue. They're getting financed. And talking about possible production two to four to five years out, that's not IBC. Well, no, that's not IBC at all. And when they do have production two to five years out, odds are they will simply be selling a concentrate or a ore to a refiner or perhaps a Chinese manufacturing company who will be able to capture the margin further downstream. And as I said, if you look at copper companies, you know, uranium companies, iron ore, gold, you know, all of the typical metals that we all are familiar with, effectively you can produce what you mine, you can produce what you smelt. Whereas in the rare earths and rare metals industry, that's not true. You need to have a vertically integrated approach so that you can control each step of the value chain. And if you don't control each step of the value chain, you're in effect giving the value away to somebody who has the key component. In the case of rare earths and rare metals, it's usually the processing and the manufacturing segments of the value chain that have the ultimate power because they're the ones that have the relationship with the end users, the customers. A lot of these companies 
companies are pure speculation, and they've got share prices two, four, five, ten dollars. Some of them have twenty dollars, and yet commodities aren't being brought to market. You have a fifteen cent stock. I don't get it. Well, I don't get it either, except for the fact that I think that we're being kind of lumped in with a lot of other companies, and it still astonishes me that even some of our existing shareholders aren't aware of the fact that we're generating north of twenty million dollars a year in revenues. And I think that once people begin to really understand who we are, understand the differences between IBC and some of the other companies that may be familiar with, they're going to see that we are that stock that is worth buying and putting away and holding for a long, long time. There's been a big, big drop in the market over the last eight weeks. We're in the tax loss selling season. We're towards the end of the year. Jim Dines just gave his keynote speech at the Hard Asset Show like 45 minutes ago, and he said that he predicts a strong rally after the beginning of January, and I think we're going to be very much a part of that rally. I think he qualified it by saying that people are going to be much more selective now as to what companies they buy. They're not simply going to be buying the sector. You know, two years ago, you could have hung out a shingle saying you're a rare earth company and your stock would have gone up 2 or 300%. Today, that's not true. You have to actually have some substance. You have to have a business plan. You have to have a revenue model. And ultimately, what's going to happen here is that the cream will rise to the top. And I think that IBC is very much uh, a part of that cream. The website is ibcadvancedalloys.com. IBC Advanced Alloys trades on the OTCQX. Just type in the symbol I-A-A-L-F. That's I-A-A-L-F. Anthony Dutton, president of IBC Advanced Alloys, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.